Today we're going to look at large data sets, looking more on a population level. Is there ways to inform us into areas of musculoskeletal pain and musculoskeletal practice, areas that we may be able to figure out why do people actually seek out healthcare and go and seek out solutions? This is Pain Refrain. Well, welcome back to Pain Reframed. Dr. Derek Cooley is going to be joining us from Duke University, and I look forward to this conversation on many levels. I believe that we have to look at these problems both on the individual level, but clearly on the systems and societal level. Derek, would you mind giving uh, the listeners a little bit of uh, information about where you are and what you're up to? Thanks for having me on the show, first of all. I'm honored to be here. It's one of those things where I feel there are a lot of podcasts going on, and I think you guys are doing some really impressive things. And so to be actually a, a part of this show is a really big honor for me. I am uh, at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, and my role here is I teach in our musculoskeletal courses. I direct some of our uh, evidence-based practice courses, and I get a little bit of research time to investigate some of the things that interest me. So I'm in a pretty good spot, especially in terms of my academic and scholarly activities. Activity and looking forward to continuing to pursue some of the research agendas that have been set forth already. Well, outstanding. Well, tell us a little bit about your, your more recent work and how you're looking at large data sets to, to try to glean information and how we can better serve patients with a lot of persistent pain problems. It's interesting how I guess all of our careers kind of take and change and, and morph into uh, where we are at. I never thought that I would be looking at big data sets to look at clinical practice specifically. And I think, especially with the time of EMR and these kinds of things, it definitely has made our ability to look at some of these bigger questions a little bit more accomplishable. Before I even go into the big data stuff, what I remember, especially from being in, in clinical practice, is always wondering you know, how much does what I do, how much does it impact the patients and how much do I, how much role do I have in that? And I always wondered, you know, especially from the, the, the angle from the patient and such. And so when I started looking at big data research topic and the research question that I started looking at was basically how healthcare utilization is influenced or what influences healthcare utilization. Part of my dissertation piece there, I was looking at trying to identify a way to proxy measure, if you will, behavioral attributes, specifically behavioral attributes toward healthcare services. And so uh, if you look at the research on this area, it's typically termed healthcare seeking behavior. And so try to do is create some sort of a measure that allowed for us to look at healthcare seeking and healthcare seeking behaviors and see if those things actually predict healthcare utilization. And essentially asking, you know, what else predicts, what else is associated with that future healthcare utilization? So you're saying that healthcare utilization, meaning the amount of times a, a patient may actually go to a clinician, an image, a test, 
And then secondly, how often they may seek that out. And could you explain just a little more for the listeners those terms? Because sometimes they are a bit confusing. Yeah, and I think they still are confusing. Even when you look at the research, they're they're pretty confusing terms. Healthcare utilization can be measured in a lot of different ways. Obviously, the two probably biggest areas of healthcare utilization measures uh, that we can look at, especially from a big data standpoint, is we can look at healthcare utilization from cost utilization, and we can look at healthcare utilization from actual visits or consumption of healthcare. Visits can be anything from PT visits to surgical visits to imaging visits, medication use. Um, is another area that is obviously used for healthcare utilization. And so there's a lot of things that we could use to measure healthcare utilization. And so healthcare utilization is typically measured as a dependent variable or the outcome variable to what we're looking at. What we did was we also looked though at seeing if we could identify patterns of healthcare utilization and see if there's ways that we can create a proxy measure of healthcare seeking behavior. And so when we looked at healthcare seeking behavior, we specifically looked at the amount of visits that a patient has because a visit is something that a patient has a little bit more say in the game. Cost can be associated with a whole lot of things. There's a lot of things that play into that, but a visit is something that the patient we feel is controlled to some extent or is at least initiated by the patient, especially certain types of visits. And so not all healthcare visits are the same. Obviously, imaging visits can be influenced a lot by the provider. Other things can be influenced a lot by the provider. But when we look at certain types of visits, they also can be more influenced by the patient themselves. And so we really were interested in looking at the primary care type visits that a patient has and being able to identify the health-seeking behavior proxy measure based off of that healthcare utilization. So to answer your question, the when we look at those terms, healthcare utilization and, and healthcare-seeking behavior, we really don't have a good grasp on healthcare-seeking behavior. And it's been really measured in a lot of different ways. Just about any study that you look at, there isn't any consistency in, in how that's actually measured. And, and part of the problem is just because behavior is so complex and complicated that it's not something that can be easily measured. But healthcare utilization is something that is relatively easy to measure, especially from these large data sets that we actually had access to. What are some of the key points that you guys are beginning to uncover in this realm? Yeah, so one of the things that we're finding is that, and it's probably not a terribly surprising thing. I mean, obviously, I think that you have to put the data on it and you have to show the results. But what we found specifically in a couple of the studies that we looked at. And the studies that we looked at, we used the uh, military health system database. And if you look at that database, it's a very, it's a, it's a robust, it's a very clean, it's, a, it's, a, it's an impressive database to look at. The patients that are typically in this database are, especially if you're looking at healthcare utilization, are those that they're in the system, they're in the system the entire time, you can track them for longer periods of time, and you can really get a good idea of what kind of utilization rates they have. So essentially they're not going to go from one health system or one hospital or one network to another network or from one pair to another pair. They stay within that system. And so you can get a really good picture and you can really tell a good story based off of the data that is available. So what we looked at was basically trying to identify if pre-indexed or pre-something musculoskeletal 
onset. Their utilization that they had before that onset of a musculoskeletal problem predicted future downstream utilization to any sense. And so the two studies that we looked at, one was looking at surgery as an indexed event. So we looked at hip FAI surgery. And then the other one that we looked at was onset of spine pain. And so for both studies, we had a one-year healthcare utilization and patterns of utilization prior to that indexed event. And then for each study, we had a long period of data after that event so that we could analyze the utilization patterns. And essentially what we found is that those that utilize healthcare in that year preceding a musculoskeletal event were those that typically ended up utilizing healthcare more after the event specific to the musculoskeletal condition, which isn't necessarily surprising. I've heard some people say it's kind of like when you look at injury rates, the number one predictor factor for um, re-injury is a previous injury. Well, the it seems to be, at least from the data that we've looked at, a big predictor in future healthcare utilization is patterns of healthcare utilization before the onset of an event. And if we use the proxy sort of thought Maybe there is a behavioral bent that folks have that lead them to utilize more healthcare services after an event, no matter what that event might be. I would admit my bias in being, you know, trying to keep people from being unnecessary medicalized, right? And so almost looking at health seeking behavior as a negative thing. But I guess I would love to hear your kind of why behind all of this. You know, what are we really hoping to find out? Are we hoping to to drive folks and encourage folks to utilize healthcare resources? Are we looking at the concern of them over utilizing? I, I would love the 30,000 foot view here. Oh, that's a great question, Jeff. You know, when you look at health-seeking behavior or healthcare-seeking behavior literature, it's actually pretty robust. There's actually a lot of research on healthcare-seeking behavior. Typically, though, the healthcare-seeking behavior research is actually trying to identify ways that we can improve individuals' utilization of healthcare services. And specifically, when you look at these bigger disease, these bigger epidemics or, or chronic-type conditions that may be preventable, maybe we can actually increase uh, lifespan because we, we pick up some of these diseases early. So cancer detection screenings. If we look at a classic example would be in West Africa for the Ebola outbreak. There was a lot of research that was specifically done in that area to look at ways to improve healthcare-seeking behavior. If we look at it in well-served areas such as the United States, there obviously is underserved populations uh, within the even the United States that they're trying to find ways that we can improve individuals behavior toward health care and actually utilize health care services more often, going in for annual screenings, going in for physicals, utilizing dentistry, all that kind of stuff. So there's a fair amount of research that looks at that. And so we're trying to actually try to increase utilization. Uh, what's interesting though in musculoskeletal care, and I think that we see a, a bit of research on this, is that potentially for some conditions and for some facets, there seems to be a overutilization of healthcare services at times. And whether that's healthcare visits, money spent, opioid use, medication use, those kinds of things, there seems to be an, an, an overuse to that. And so the research on healthcare seeking behavior and the overutilization is much, much more limited. We do see a little bit of it when it comes to things like emergency room, emergency department use, that kind of thing. And those that frequent flyer, quote unquote, literature is a, a little bit available out there and trying to identify some of the things in that. But it's typically pretty small. So 
in terms of if you look at the two areas of research, those are the two kinds of things. And, and this is some of the studies that we're looking at are new and emerging um, specific to the overutilization of healthcare. You know, Derek, as you're talking, I think you just brought up a very key point on this concept because, you know, we think that more healthcare is better in certain conditions it are it is, but clearly I would be a little more strong in the fact that in perhaps even a majority of musculoskeletal conditions, more, quote, traditional healthcare is actually worse. Where I'm going with this is that people are seeking answers and solutions, but their answers and solutions lie more on the behavioral side of life and the behavioral and educational side of life. And our healthcare system is actually doing a horrible job at providing that type of care. So the patients are seeking out solutions. The, the, I, I look at these health-seeking behaviors in musculoskeletal. They're trying to get out of pain and improve life, but they keep coming into a system that is actually giving them answers that frequently are having no benefit or making them worse. And I'd just like you to maybe respond to that. It's a great point. You know, and, and before I even answer that question, I'll qualify that, you know, certainly from the angle of looking at healthcare utilization, I completely agree with you, Tim. I think my hypothesis would be that um, there is an overutilization of healthcare. One of the things that we don't know yet is the value of that overutilization of health care. I would, my hypothesis is, is that as we provide more care, we're not getting better outcomes. And I think that that's a future area of study. And, and certainly when we look at value-based research and such, but I don't think that that necessarily is going to be the case. And I would agree with you completely. And there's a, there's a bunch of models on behavioral models of healthcare utilization. And they stem all the way back into the, the 60s and 70s and 80s. And I, I don't know if we've departed from that a little bit, uh, because we're trying to maybe focus on improving the uptake of healthcare use. And we've gone away from some of these other pieces there. But one of the models that I like actually shows where you know, individuals are coming into the healthcare system, like you said, and they're seeking something. And that as healthcare providers or as a healthcare entity here, we're not necessarily providing the things that we're needing. And in fact, if anything, we are becoming more of an enabler potentially, right? So we create these conditions that need to be over-treated and over-managed. I don't think that it's necessarily the, you know, one of the things I don't want the misperception of some of these studies is, is that it becomes now the patient's fault because I don't think it is the patient's fault. I think it's, you know, the, the patients have behavioral bents toward healthcare and such, but I think as providers, we have to recognize these things and, and know how to manage them well. And I don't, I would agree. I don't think that we're generally, in, especially in musculoskeletal care, are doing a great job in really addressing the patient's needs appropriately. And if anything, we are enabling some of these potential behaviors to then create and facilitate more of these behavioral features that increase of healthcare services as opposed to maybe appropriately treating the patient. I was fortunate to hear Victor Montori, who's written a book called The Patient Revolution, and uh, he'll be coming on the podcast in upcoming months here. But, you know, he uses the term industrialized medicine very strongly and talks about when you look at this data set, I look, I think about those data points, the system looks at as a, you know, just a data point, essentially a transactional unit. Our current system is based on increased 
finances come from every one of those transactions. So the more they enter that system and get those touches, the more dollars change hands. And he has really called for this. Basically, I look at your data sets and say, you know, patients are seeking answers and solutions, but it seems overwhelming, at least in some of the areas you're looking at, that a large number of them are not getting the care that they have originally sought out. And I'm curious on how you think you can, from this, kind of get to the patient stories of what some of those data points look like. If you understand that question there, is there a way that we can merge kind of this, you know, these large data sets with kind of that individual patient and perhaps through interviews and the like say, you know, why did you go down this pathway? What were some of those factors? Looking back in, even in clinical practice, which I'm, you know, full disclosure, not so much in anymore, but I, hearing the patient's stories and, and we all hear them. And I think as physical therapists, depending on our, our situation, a lot of times we don't get these patients until a, a lot later in, in line. And we're seeing these folks maybe a, a bit too late, potentially some would argue, but, but even in physical therapy, I think that we're also prone to creating those, those issues as well. But there are the behavioral models where a patient has, you know, is, go, is going through life and everything is fine. You know, I'm, I'm very fortunate in my own personal life. I have very few musculoskeletal problems, a little plantar heel pain, that kind of thing. But I don't seem to make too much of an issue to that. But it is comes to a point where, okay, I now uh, may need to actually seek healthcare services. And so I go out of that sort of health behavioral role and I'm, I'm living a healthy lifestyle and I go into and I seek the healthcare visit because now I have a problem. And at that point, it's, you know, it's sort of a, it's not a choose your own adventure. It's kind of like you get chosen and to go into a path to some extent. And maybe at that point, they're, they're just looking for just some answers. Maybe they're looking for a reassurance, right? Uh, maybe they're just looking for, you're going to be okay and, and, you know, can move on here. Whereas some individuals may end up getting to a point where they're being told other things and they're being advised about a condition that they may or may not have that we don't have a whole lot of evidence on. And the next thing you know, they're getting more imaging and more visits and and their pain is increasing and all of these other things that we know in, in PT and, and musculoskeletal care, their pain is exacerbating because of you know more fear, more anxiety and these kinds of things. And the next thing you know, they're going through multiple diagnostic procedures and we can't find anything wrong because there probably isn't anything necessarily wrong. And then they go into these treatment paradigms. And so whether that treatment is is physical therapy, whether that treatment is surgery, whether that treatment is injection, whether that treatment is medication or whatever it is, a lot of that is is highly variable, especially in musculoskeletal care. And I, I would find it interesting to take those, you know, what we had, we had 1,800, 1,600 individuals in each of those data sets. Uh, it would be fascinating to hear their stories and to hear in each individual's stories. And I think that what we would see is we would see a lot of variability in how we're actually managing patients and how we're actually managing uh, the care of those individuals. Yeah, all I can say is I think it'd be really interesting. I think that's a great area of, of future study is actually looking at some of the qualitative aspects of healthcare seeking behavior and, and how some individu individuals end up on a path 
that we see in clinical practice. I mean, we've all seen those patients, they, they come back for more care, right? They come back for the same problem. They come, they keep coming back to us. And in my practice, it was, it was great. You know, they, they may bring me brownies and they certainly helped my productivity, right? I mean, they, they were great because I got high visits per referral, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But at some point, um, we as a healthcare service are doing some high level of disservice to these individuals, but I don't know what actually their, their story would be. And I think that that would be a very interesting and fascinating line of healthcare seeking behavior research. What a fascinating conversation. Definitely a different take, but looking at how large data may inform us on some of these issues around uh, seeking care when we hurt. Uh, again, we want to shout out to our sponsors, ispinstitute.com and Adrian Lowe and his folks. And just to let you know that for those that are going to the AAOMPT conference next month, Dr. Lowe will be there. He'll be doing a breakout session and a, a pre-conference session on, on really surrounding these topics of, of pain and the pain science in manual therapy practice. So again, encourage you to look at Dr. Lowe and his work at ispinstitute.com. And with no further ado, let's get back to Pain Reframed. Absolutely. And Derek, I guess my understanding currently with what you guys are finding is that we don't have any answers yet regarding to whether one type of health-seeking behavior or absence of it predicts overall outcomes, our biases aside. What I'd be really curious to hear is, are we finding any trends yet in folks who seem to demonstrate a high level of health seeking behavior are, are we seeing that you know it's fellas in in their mid 50s in inner city areas do, do we have anything shaking out yet as far as groups and subsets of folks who for whatever reason seem to be accessing and seeking a large quantity of health care you know, I don't know the the data on that, Jeff. My assumption is, is that we don't. I don't think that we've been able to really identify. I, I take that back. There is some research, and I don't know it off the top of my head, the data specific to it. I would imagine that there is some data out there that shows some demographic factors that are associated with higher or lower healthcare seeking behaviors. You know, more affluent populations, access to care is a big thing. So if you have access to care, whether that's financially, whether that's geographically, whatever that might be, that's obviously going to increase your utilization of healthcare, which is whether or not that's a proxy of healthcare seeking behavior or not, that's the kind of another question. But I think that there are, you know, obviously pockets, um, whatever those demographics might be, and there probably is some data out there on that. But you bring up a good point, though, in that we don't know what the outcomes are with that. And I think that's an area of research that I'm definitely more interested in seeing because let's just say that maybe maybe more utilization of healthcare is is better. Maybe they do actually get better outcomes and maybe there is some value to that. And I think one of the areas that I think we'll be moving into more in terms of research, especially musculoskeletal research, is, is value-based research and seeing how much value are we getting out of so much dollars spent? How much value are we getting out of so many visits seen? And is there a certain point where we miss that out? And of course, big data data will help us shape some of that story. But as Tim said, the details in that patient story are obviously going to be different for each individual, but at least getting some data captured on, you know, maybe there is a certain amount that is 
appropriate. I do, I do think that some of the issues, though, may be in how we measure success and how we measure outcomes and how we measure those things. So one of the things that we have to be careful with, and especially in, in large data sets, is that when we look at some of the outcome measures, are they truly measuring what we think that we're measuring in terms of, of an outcome and whether or not that person is actually making the changes that we would anticipate them making. But that's an area that we haven't touched on yet, but it's certainly an area that we definitely need to be touching on. And I would really urge caution. Um, you know, it is the buzzword of value in healthcare. And again, it goes to the heart of, you know, what are we supposed to be delivering? It strikes to the meaning of, again, yes, we have limited resources and we need to deploy those accordingly. But if we're coming from a perspective, especially in musculoskeletal care, in these biobehavioral problems, which I believe musculoskeletal care is a is truly a biobehavioral approach, is, is the approach needed, and yet much of the system is not delivering it that way. So we're basically measuring the value of a failed system mm-hmm. and to say, which is doing it a little less crappy. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's one thing I'd really have you guys think about. I would completely agree with you. It's the problem with how we're even providing care, you know, especially in these large data sets, there's so much variability in how we are managing patients. And I, and I don't think that there, there's still a very large need to determine, okay, what sort of approaches are, are best. And I, you know, we're still far from that. And so the assumption, like you said, is that anything that we are measuring, are we measuring, you know, best care, best practice, most appropriate practice. And I would agree that by and large, we are we are probably not. So we are measuring value based on, like you said, a, a potentially very failed system. Derek, I really appreciate this, this conversation. I think it's so cool. We, we've talked so much about you know, the outcomes, be it financial or other ways of discerning outcome when you use a certain type of intervention, right? So musculoskeletal or early intervention musculoskeletal compared to other types of interventions for certain conditions. And, and while it's fascinating, it's cool now to step back and say, well, what about looking at the behavioral patterns of the individual accessing that care historically in leading up to the moment? And how is that going to affect things? So I think you you all are unpacking something that's going to have tremendous value for how we move forward. And I guess my last question to you this morning would be, what's the big goal? I mean, Derek, for you personally, as you're interested in this line of research, I mean, what questions do you really hope that we can reasonably answer as you guys go after this in the next handful of years and are able to dig deeper? What do you hope we come out with some key answers to what key questions? Yeah, I think the big thing, Jeff, is that I really hope that we can sort of unpack these behavioral features and behavioral attributes. And and then not only that, you know, that's that's academic and that's nice and that's that's fine. But I think finding ways that clinicians can actually tap into that and actually be able to provide you know, the most appropriate care, you know, what kind of behavioral attributes, what kind of behavioral features do some individuals have? Are they individuals that are, you know, going to be more, have a higher risk or have a higher association with utilization of healthcare services? And can we find ways to, you know, maybe work them out of the healthcare system more? And are there behavioral features that maybe some individuals have that we can recognize that, you know what, we actually need to look the other direction and actually get you into utilization of healthcare services. I'm hoping that as we move toward the healthcare seeking behavior literature, it doesn't just become a healthcare utilization uh, research line. It actually really does unpack those behavioral attributes specific to how patients 
interface and interact with the healthcare system specific to musculoskeletal care. At that level, I think that being able to then provide clinicians with some opportunities and abilities to better manage their patients through the healthcare system, I think are going to be important things, specifically even for physical therapists, where we as potential primary care providers have a role in either facilitating some of those behaviors to keep them on track or or facilitating behaviors that actually help to get them out of the healthcare system because we're picking up these patterns that suggest that you know, more healthcare for these folks is not necessarily going to equate to to better outcomes. And at some level, we have to be able to identify that and be able to work through that and and, and get them out of that healthcare system as appropriate. Very cool, man. Well, well, Derek, thanks so much, man. Thanks for being here on the show and thanks for doing this line of research. I think it's going to unpack some really cool variables that that we can all reflect on in our practice to best serve folks who who are in need. So really appreciate your time, man. Yeah, thank you guys. Derek, before we officially sign off, do you mind leaving your calling card? Yeah, so I am somewhat active on Twitter. Twitter handle is DJCLEWPT, DJ Clue PT. I think it was DJ Clue before there was actually a DJ Clue. <laughs> um, so DJ Clue PT on Twitter. You can find my email on the Duke DBT website. So if you Google that, you'll find my email on that. And if anybody has any questions or has any thoughts or anything on this, I, I always appreciate an email. I, anytime that anybody can share some content and knowledge and other perspectives, I, I love hearing that stuff. So if anybody wants to reach out to me, I'm, I'm always available. Perfect, Derek. Thanks so much, man. Thank you. Wow, what a great conversation with Dr. Derek Cluley, a friend and a, and a really terrific up-and-coming researcher at Duke. Unpacking this this different way of looking at things, you know, and as opposed to thinking quite so much about, you know, which kind of intervention at which time, actually looking at behavioral patterns of the individual patients seeking our care. And I think just one more, as we think about clinical practice, you know, certainly one of the big pillars being kind of where the patient is coming from and their expectations and their relevant experience, really important area to unpack. So can't wait to to watch how this shakes out and what it tells us and how it informs us about how to best move forward. And, and certainly also really taking to note Tim's word of caution on how are we measuring this stuff and are we really looking at, at apples and apples in the way that we're coming alongside patients and just making sure that we don't get over enthusiastic and over interpret our findings as well. So really great conversation this morning and really appreciate all of you being here. Keep tracking us, International Spine and Pain Institute, ISPIinstitute.com. Um, if you want to see any of the courses there as far as the, the short term or the certification courses to dive deeper into managing folks who are dealing with persistent pain, please do so and keep Keep track of Tim and I on social media. Pain Reframe Facebook page is always busy, so hop over there and check us out. Other than that, have an awesome day and keep on keeping on. Pain Reframed is brought to you by our sponsor, the International Spine and Pain Institute. Check out their transformative pain science programming at ispinstitute.com.